this movie really has that that aura surrounding it of, of feeling like the movie that if people haven't been back to a movie theater yet over the past year or so, this is going to bring out a certain audience because it, this Top Gun was the biggest film of its time the year it came out. And I think there's a Generation X appeal that maybe hasn't been going back to the movie theater as much the last couple of years. Before the pandemic, maybe it was becoming just a few times out per year. This is the kind of movie that I think that audience is really, really excited to go back out and see in a theater. This is the Box Office Podcast. I am Daniel Luria, the editorial director of Box Office Pro, the only publication in North America exclusively dedicated to covering theatrical exhibition. We've got a packed episode today looking over our final forecast for Top Gun Maverick opening this weekend, one of the most anticipated films of the year. We will be joined by Russ Fisher, the editorial director of the Box Office Studios, later on to discuss the box office history of Tom Cruise at the movies. That'll be an interesting trip down memory lane. But before we get started, we have here Rebecca Pauly, deputy editor of Box Office Pro, joined once again by Sean Robbins, the chief analyst of Box Office Pro, to discuss the weekend box office and what we can expect from that opening weekend of Top Gun Maverick. Sean, Rebecca, welcome once again to our podcast. How's uh, everything going with you guys? Um, I, I just had an image of my head of when, uh, when Russ enters the podcast to uh, talk about the history of, of Tom Cruise at the box office. He'll just slide into danger zone while wearing aviator glasses. And uh, now <laughs> I really hope that's what happens. Very thematic. That's nice. How about you, Sean? Are you ready for some beach volleyball this weekend? Uh, absolutely. Yeah, I think uh, I think I'm ready for everything that movie has to offer after hearing the hype about it from everyone that's seen it over the past few weeks. Daniel, you're planning to see it in Screen X, right? So you're going to get the full panoramic uh, Tom yeah. Cruise experience. Actually, I'm geeking out on this one. Um, so I've got a, a press screening of this film in the panoramic screen format, Screen X. And I've also got tickets to see this through my A-list subscription on AMC in both IMAX, because it was shot using IMAX cameras, and that Dolby Atmos sound mix. I've been hearing a lot about it. If you guys listen to this podcast, you know I'm really interested to see how these different premium format technologies evolve, what the different experiences are. I will also be catching it in Dolby Cinema later on next week. Daniel, what if you don't like the movie? <laughs> You've I'm watching it three times. I mean, it, listen, it's not the first time I've done it. Uh, I've watched many, many. This is, I guess, a, a work assignment, you can call it. Uh, I don't like the original. You guys know that. I'm not at all a fan. I'm not sure I'll like this one. But I think it's uh, it's worth checking out, especially as we're talking about the evolution of premium large format. Because as you guys know, PLF is becoming just such a selling point for these movies the format itself is becoming just as much of a selling point as the stars. I mean, Sean, as you look at the forecasting on this, is that what you're gauging in the opening weekend here? Yeah, I think that's a big part of it. Uh, this movie really has that that aura surrounding it of, of feeling like the movie that if people haven't been back to a movie theater yet over the past year or so, this is going to bring out a certain audience because it, this Top Gun was the biggest film of its time the year it came out. And I think there's a Generation X appeal that maybe hasn't been going back to the movie theater as much the last couple of years. Before the pandemic, maybe it was becoming just a few times out per year. This is the kind of movie that I think that audience is really, really excited to go back out and see in a theater. We've been talking about that offline, kind of wondering 
how much Maverick is going to appeal to younger generations. Is it just they are not invested in Top Gun or do they just see it as like another Mission Impossible type? Oh, Tom Cruise action movies are good. Um, I mean, when it comes to adult audiences, is there anything that uh, we can tell from the performance and demographics of Downton Abbey that will give us any kind of insight into Top Gun Maverick's opening weekend or are the two movies just way too far apart? There are quite a few differences. Um, I think it can tell us a little bit. The biggest gap here is that Downton Abbey was driven primarily by a female audience, 73% and 87% over the age of 35, I believe, is what Universal reported over the weekend. Wow. So we're talking about three quarters of that opening weekend audience for Downton Abbey 2 being female. I mean, this is really good news, right? Yeah. And I, there, I think there was some expectation this film would have dropped off from the prior film. Regardless, that just tends to happen with sequels to television series being adapted into feature films. All in all, I feel like this past weekend was generally in line with expectations, maybe a little bit on the lower end, but certainly a more of a positive sign than anything else. What I think that will tell us about Top Gun is that if the if the female audience, particularly over the age of 35, is starting to come back for a known IP like Downton Abbey, that's also some of the audience that helped drive Top Gun, which is still going to be male-driven, heavily male-driven, I will say. But hey, there's more than one female character in the movie exactly. this time, so... <laughs> <laughs> that may help, yeah. Well, when we talk about that Downton Abbey uh, reception and, and those demographics, like you mentioned, Sean, the data point is actually 30 and older, 87% of that opening weekend audience, 30 and older, 73% of that opening weekend audience, female, the word of mouth on this title, an A cinema score for it. It's been getting good reviews, a $16 million opening weekend, very far away from that $31 million opening from the first Downton Abbey movie back in September 2019. The first one had a really good hold, though, and got up to $100 million almost. I mean, yeah. obviously, we're not expecting those numbers, but do you have any thoughts on hold for Downton Abbey? I mean, it's obviously a different situation because it's the beginning of summer and there's a lot more stuff coming out, whereas the first one came out kind of sure. in September. Yeah, I think having Memorial Day in its second weekend will obviously be a big help. It will lose Dolby, which it had a, a very strong showing in over the weekend, but this is again, this is it's appealing to an older audience, and that's not really a rush out crowd. Although Downton is a little bit of the exception because its preview shows have a strong fan base. But like what happened with the first film, it did stabilize very quickly. I think that can happen here as we go into the early summer. And there aren't really a, a lot of options that are going to take away from that crowd once you get past the front loading from the, the diehard fans. Well, I mean, Top Gun then. Uh, we know at least two tickets are already uh, purchased from, from Mr. Luria here. So uh, what can we expect more on a macro level? And I'm, I'm really curious to see how this does internationally, because obviously Tom Cruise is an international star. But I mean, I feel like the Top Gun franchise is very like rah-rah American in a way that I'm not sure will translate. How, how Do you know how the first one did internationally? The first one was released back before we had that evolution of overseas box office being a, a relevant part of the global marketplace. Of course, as we know, the introduction of digital projection really helped that overseas market grow, completely revolutionized overseas distribution and made international box office a real factor. But that's a great point, Rebecca, because the first one's performance at the box office didn't have to have that caveat, didn't have to perform overseas to be a hit. Sean, I think we can agree here. 
Any movie released today by a major studio that's supposed to be a tentpole can only be called a tentpole if it does so on a global level. Yeah, it certainly has to ha- cover all the bases unless it's just really going to knock it out of the park in one or two markets. Obviously, America being a key one. We look at the last Mission Impossible film, Tom Cruise, as you both have mentioned, he's become a global brand. That last Mission film did 72% of its business outside of North America. I'm not sure Top Gun quite reaches those heights, but where I think in the balance that might not matter as much is that Top Gun is tracking well ahead of any other Mission Impossible film that is released in North America. So dollar for dollar, uh, a lot of that ground could be made up with a North American performance that really looks to hit some high-end expectations, if not far exceed them. In terms of that North American uh, box office, then, Sean, for the opening weekend, what would the film have to make for you to consider it a successful opening weekend? Putting this in terms of just making it a success, uh, I would say just coming close to a 90 to $100 million domestic opening. This is an inexpensive film. Uh, And that does put a little bit more importance on the North American performance if we expect that maybe its domestic-leaning subject matter will make it more of a North American movie than an international movie like we talked about. However, I think we're going to go well past that mark. Uh, We've gone from really just kind of seeing this as Tom Cruise's likely first $100 million opening his career to what could be one of, if not maybe, the top Memorial Day opening. It's hard to say that's a lock, but I think that the signs are there to make it possible. Tom Cruise has never had a hundred million opening. No, 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 no. We went over this a couple of weeks back here on the podcast. It's actually been far from it, right? Sean, what's the high watermark for Tom Cruise? Uh, Yeah, it was, it was Mission Impossible Fallout, which was around 60 million or that range. So it hasn't even really been close to be honest, but a lot of factors make Top Gun a horse of a different color for him at this point in his career. Well, and I guess we'll be talking about that later on in this episode with uh, with Russ Fisher as we kind of delve a little bit deeper into his filmography and his Tom Cruise's life at the box office. So now that we understand what the potential is here, obviously with the context that this film is different than a sort of Marvel title where you have a lot of younger audiences doing repeat viewings. This is a longer movie. It's going for a slightly older demographic that doesn't go back three, four times to see the same title like we see with the Marvel films. Sean, for a total domestic gross pre-opening, what's your range that you're tracking at this point? For a, a total domestic gross at this point, I mean, it's it's almost insane to talk about some of these numbers for a Tom Cruise movie, not because he, he's incapable of doing it, but just because it hasn't happened. But I'm really looking at maybe something like 300 domestic Probably wow. even higher. Wow. You know, there, it, will, it will depend on legs. Memorial Day openers can have a varied history. We go back and look at something like Indiana Jones in 2008. It had strong legs, even though it was a franchise with mixed word of mouth. Things have changed a lot since then. But being that this is an older leaning picture, I, I think there, that potential is still there. And it can coexist with other summer movies, even though Jurassic World opens two weeks later. This is the kind of movie which has that word of mouth, reminding me a little bit of Mad Max, honestly, a few years ago, Mm. an action film that opened early in the summer and just kind of really blew away anyone's expectations and managed to hold on after a a strong opening. We're talking about a much different level, though, here with Top Gun, much bigger numbers than Mad Max. And we we know that that word of mouth for Top Gun is really that good. We've heard it now many, many times (laughs) since the film uh, premiered at CinemaCon. I think there's a lot of... We published it on our podcast with our uh, CEO, Julian Marcel, absolutely falling head over heels for it, so... Really, it's been an incredible reception for this film... But let's hedge our bets a little bit. 
let's say this underperforms because we actually saw this with no time to die last year where right. we expected it to open at a decent level. The older audiences were going to come back, but it disappointed. I think you gave it a B minus if we had to grade it uh, on a curve with the pandemic. Sean, what's that threshold here between this being a disappointment and a success? That's tough to answer. In terms of just a strict number or a domestic opening, to me, it's something around the 90 million range. I feel like for as much attention as the movie is getting, how much it's really been at the center of the pandemic amid delays, and the fact that Paramount has held onto this as their their big set piece to release after theaters had opened and people were coming back to movies. You know, when we look at Memorial Day weekend, which I think is another smart move because of the military family appeal that this will have, all of the ingredients are there to make this the kind of film that really reaches that upper echelon of performances. So, you know, ordinarily it's tough to say that an 80 to 90 million opening would be disappointing or or miss expectations. I think in the in this case with what we're seeing from pre-sales and tracking and reviews, I would be very surprised if it didn't far exceed those numbers. Well, we're excited to see that performance, and that is Top Gun Maverick opening this weekend here in North America in several key overseas markets. You can keep track of the latest forecasting and updates on its performance on our website, boxofficepro.com. Sean, thanks for stopping by. Absolutely. And now let's go ahead to our feature segment with our other co-host, Russ Fisher, the editorial director of the Box Office Studios, which provides editorial content for movie theaters. We'll be going over the entire box office history of Tom Cruise right after this break. And we are back here on the Box Office Podcast in our feature segment as we go over the box office history of Tom Cruise. We're going to be going over his performance in ticket sales and also the social and cultural factors that have created what many have dubbed the last true movie star of this era. We've got here Russ Fisher, editorial director of the Box Office Studios, which specializes in creating editorial content for movie theaters. Russ, you're deeply involved in connecting film culture with movie-going audiences, with consumers. So when we talk about all this, the whole idea of a movie star ends up being a huge part of how you think about engaging with readers. Absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I'm probably one of those people who would say that Tom Cruise is maybe our last legit traditional movie star in the sense that when I say that, I'm thinking about someone whose name opens a movie. Um, there are no shortage of fantastic actors, uh, men and women working. Uh, it's, it's a, you know, right now is a wonderful time to be watching movies, but in terms of movie stars, whose name is enough to put people in theater, even when they don't know anything about the movie, uh, Tom Cruise is probably among the last. So his first major role is in the movie Taps, which is a 1981 movie about uh, a military prep school that is uh, going to be closed and a number of students uh, led by Timothy Hutton uh, with kind of lieutenants played by Cruise and Sean Penn, also Sean Penn's first major role. Um, they take over the school and they try to basically preserve the school by taking it over. Uh, things do not go well. Uh, things went very well for Cruise, however. Um, Taps got made because Timothy Hutton, who was, I think, 20 at the time or 21, had just won the Oscar for his role in Ordinary People, which is indeed phenomenal. Ordinary People, great movie, 
probably a better movie than you're expecting it to be as like a vintage, you know, an early 80s best picture winner. Fantastic. Anyway, Cruz shows up and taps. He's the aggressive, militant um, cadet who does more violence than just about anybody else. Famously, a few years later when he met Paul Newman, with whom he would co-star in Martin Scorsese's The Color of Money, Paul Newman addressed him as killer, was like, hey, hey, killer, uh, due to his role in TAPS. TAPS is formative. Cruz had been doing auditions. He basically did like a high school production of Guys and Dolls. His mom was a drama teacher. He decided, I want to act. He went to New York, I think, and, L- and would travel to LA, started doing auditions, got some small stuff. Taps was supposed to, he was basically supposed to be an extra in Taps, but he was so dedicated to like perfecting the physical aspect of being a military cadet that his role in the movie was bumped up. He was given a bigger part. And I think that is pretty impressive because that is pretty much Tom Cruise in a nutshell, is that he works maybe harder than anyone else to physically and hopefully emotionally master his roles. And it puts him out in front of what a lot of other people are doing. Um, Taps did a couple other things, introduced him to Sean Penn. Uh, Sean Penn shortly starred in um, Fast Times at Ridgemont, Ridgemont High, written by Cameron Crowe. Uh, Penn and Cruz become friends. Cruz gets to know Cameron Crowe. A few years later, Cameron Crowe interviews Cruz for Interview Magazine around the time of the original release of Top Gun. Later, they do Vanilla Sky together. And so, like, there's a thing right off the bat, like, Cruz is working with interesting people. In that interview with Crow, he mentions that he got cast in a movie called Losing It, which was like a crappy 80s sex comedy. And he was like, the script was bad and the movie was even worse than the script would make you think the movie was going to be. And it taught him something. He was like, okay, I don't want to do garbage. There is this definite history before that first starring breakout role comes in with Risky Business in 1983. That opens to 4.2 million, a pretty good figure at the time. Goes on to be a hit, 63.5 million domestic. Again, we're talking about 1983 box office. These are very good numbers. Um, And it really launches him into a stardom that is then followed by some films that are kind of curious. All the Right Moves comes out in 1983 as well. That opens to 1.6, tops out at 17.2. But then that Ridley Scott collaboration, Legend, which is really the first film to come out after his success in Risky Business has established him as a leading man, How would you guys describe Legend from 1985? So two things. Um, One, bounce back just a little bit to Cruz doing that movie, losing it, um, and it being a bomb and it being a bad bomb. And he was like, you know what? I want to work with good people. And he actually sought out Francis Ford Coppola. He went to Coppola, who was doing The Outsiders, and he was like, I want to be in it. I don't care what I am. I want to work with you and watch how you work. And I want to be in this movie. Um, he's in that movie. He got the chance to do Rumblefish, but then other, I think that's where, uh, maybe where, uh, risky business came in, something interfered, but anyway, you go to legend legend is made by the guy who did alien and blade runner. And when you think of Tom Cruise through the lens of like, he wants to work with interesting filmmakers, you get the call from Ridley Scott. Who's also just done the Apple commercial, um, the the like one of the biggest commercials ever made, 1984 commercial uh, for the launch of the Mac, and suddenly it's like, oh, of course you did Legend. You wanted to work with Ridley Scott. You'd seen this guy's movies. You liked them. 
that it probably didn't even matter what legend was. And I would imagine that Cruz would have said, yeah, let's let's go do it. And that movie opens to 4.2 million, very similar to that opening weekend of Risky Business back in 1983. It looks like this movie is going to hit, but it stops in its tracks with a 15.5 million box office total. So right now, when we think about Tom Cruise as the leading man, we know that before 1983, there are those bit roles, those ensemble roles that put him on the map. He steals scenes and taps. He steals scenes in The Outsiders. Risky Business is a hit, but All the Right Moves doesn't really connect with audiences. Legend is just interesting and weird. By the time Top Gun comes out in 1986, this guy is far from being proven at the box office and far from being an established star. Of course, all of that changes with the theatrical release of Top Gun. That's, I think, when we can say this guy's a star. Tom Cruise makes that movie work. I mean, Daniel, you and I were not fans of the film. Russ, what are your feelings on the film? And when did you see it? And where did you see it? I loved it. I still love it. Um, I disagree completely that it doesn't work without Cruise. Um, I'm not the biggest Tony Scott fan, but Top Gun is an amazing looking movie. Um, Top Gun has something visually that a lot of other movies at the time didn't have. Um, and it had never, nobody had ever done aerial stuff like you know, in the modern age, in seventies and eighties, nobody had done aerial stuff the way that Top Gun did it. Obviously, the way they did it was getting the cooperation of the military. Uh, there are aspects to Top Gun that are not my favorite, uh, you know, cultural relics or, or landmarks. But uh, I think the movie works. I think it's a good movie. I think it fully solidifies Cruise as a star. I would also backtrack very slightly again to Risky Business. One thing we're leaving out in the conversation of Risky Business is the rise of MTV. Something that did very well on MTV was the video for Old Time Rock and Roll by Bob Seger, which is the song that Tom Cruise dances to in his underwear in Risky Business. That video was on all the time. Even if you hadn't seen Risky Business, you knew what that was because of the video being on MTV. I think that was something... I haven't I haven't seen Risky Business, and that's all of it that I know. Well, what I'm saying is if you were a kid, if you were of a certain age in the early to mid-80s, you knew who Tom Cruise was even because of that video, even if you hadn't seen Risky Business. I hadn't seen Risky Business yet. I knew what it was because of that video. I don't think that's uncommon. I think that helped over that legend hump and over that hump where it was like, oh, this guy isn't fully a star yet, but there was a weird other machinery that was working that was putting him into people's minds. And then months later, shot at this just after Top Gun, you get The Color of Money, which is directed by Scorsese, and it teams Tom Cruise with Paul Newman. Paul Newman! You want to talk about last movie stars? You know, Paul Newman. This is hey, and the golden era and but, the movie But the star, thing is, right? Scorsese came to Cruise. Cruise did not go out for, to- for Color of Money. They came to him. They didn't, studio didn't even want Scorsese to make that movie. Paul Newman wanted Scorsese to make that movie. He got it made. They took it to multiple studios until um, it finally got a, a green light. They went to Cruise. The studio didn't want Cruise. Scorsese wanted Cruise. Um, Cruise practiced pool for hours every day to the point where he could literally do virtually every trick shot that is in that movie. And Scorsese used that because Scorsese was like, I don't have to cut into bullshit close-ups. 
with this guy and with Newman. It's like they both know how to play. And so, honestly, if you haven't seen The Color, anybody who's listening to this, if you haven't seen The Color of Money in 20 years, that movie rules. It is awesome. It's really good. And Cruz is phenomenal in it. And, like, he's great in Top Gun, but he's great in a very different way in The Color of Money. And you put those two movies together coming out like, you know, Top Gun comes out in May, Color of Money comes out in October, and it's just like... Okay. That's 1986. I mean, Tom Cruise owns 1986. And when we talk about Top Gun and that impact, and Russ, you might have referenced this very generally, when Top Gun comes out, it is a massive, massive hit. An 8.1 million opening weekend, $176 million theatrical run. I mean, unheard of numbers back in the mid 80s. You have, I think, recruiting stations in the lobbies of movie theaters from armed forces going up to young men walking out of Top Gun saying, hey, enlist. It was in the culture. It was seen as something cool to do during the time. I think Top Gun did a fantastic job in communicating something that was really hard to sell during the Vietnam era. Not that long removed from those Vietnam days to sort of make the armed forces cool again for young people. But Russ, let's go back to that 1986 year of Tom Cruise. We've got Top Gun. We've got a Scorsese movie. That leads in to Tom Cruise taking a couple of film roles in 1987 for films that come out in 1988 that are also very interesting and very unique. We're talking about Cocktail and Rain Man, two very different movies and two performances that I think are still very celebrated to this day. With Cruz, you know, you look at him going from like, oh, I'm going to master trick shots for Scorsese in The Color of Money. And then you got a cocktail where he's like, oh, I want to learn how to flip uh, cocktail shakers and make drinks in, you know, almost a circus-like atmosphere. And it's like, oh, yeah, of course you wanted to do that. Cocktails directed by the New Zealand filmmaker Roger Donaldson, who at the time had made a couple of like really like grimy underground movies like Sleeping Dogs and Smash Palace. And then he had done kind of a high adventure uh, adaptation of Mutiny on the Bounty uh, called The Bounty with uh, Mel Gibson and um, Anthony Hopkins. The Bounty's pretty good movie. Smash Palace is a really good kind of gnarly movie. Um, so again, you look at Cocktail and it's kind of like, oh, I can see Cruz wanting to make that choice. Um, Rain Man just seems obvious. Um, you know, you get to work with Dustin Hoffman. And the box office performance of these movies, I think, are also important as we see just how popular he is as a star. Cocktail opens at 11.7 million. That is the highest opening weekend for Tom Cruise up until this point. Tops out at 78.2. Rain Man, a very different type of movie, opens at 7 million, but then becomes a Top Gun-like hit. $172 million for a movie like Rain Man. Fantastic, fantastic numbers here. And that leads in to another very interesting choice as an actor here. We go from Tom Cruise being the poster boy for recruiting people into the armed forces in Top Gun to working with a filmmaker like Oliver Stone 
for a very nuanced movie about going into those armed forces, born on the 4th of July, a very strong drama, 1989, this movie opens to a very surprising $11 million, a big, big opening weekend for an Oliver Stone drama that is not easy to watch. One thing, let's roll back just very slightly to mention the Rain Man won Best Picture. Kind of a big deal. <laughs> we can't forget that. Absolutely. <laughs> kind of a big deal. But no Oscar nom for Cruz, though, right? He didn't He didn't get it. Yeah. He didn't it, get nominated. Yeah, it's weird. You know, Cruz and Oscars have really kind of always been like this, this sort of like missed connection thing, right? Nominated three times, not one at all. And at this point, it seems like he, I don't know if he kind of doesn't care or it just seems like he's Tom Cruise and he doesn't, he's a big enough star. Yeah. You know, it's, but it's interesting, right? Like he's, you would think that he would have won at this point and, and it's kind of like, oh, okay. Well, if he was going to win for a movie, taking a role like Born on the Fourth of July, that's the sort of role you take on for that best actor nomination if not win that's what that decision tells me of course he doesn't win but the movie is a success yeah i mean the movie is a big success and like you said not the easiest movie to watch um you know again you can see why cruz does it it's you know it's stone after doing wall street and platoon it's got talk radio in there which was not a big success but is a good movie and then, yeah, the the Oscar showing for Born on the Fourth of July is kind of intriguing. Uh, you know, Stone gets director, but that's the year that uh, famously Driving Miss Daisy won Best Picture, which is uh, probably not uh, the movie that should have won we Best Picture we don't like that year. That. Yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, ordinary people gets gets crap for waiting over a Raging Bull, but ordinary people like actually is good and did deserve. <laughs> That, yeah. that win and driving Miss Daisy. Literally uh, every other movie nominated for Best Picture <laughs> that year, which is Born on the Fourth of July, Dead Poets Society, Field the Dreams, and My Left Foot. Any of those movies deserve Best Picture more than Driving Miss Daisy. Cruz is nominated for Best Actor. He loses to Daniel Day Lewis. Sorry to be opposite nominated opposite Daniel Day Lewis. It's just not going to go yeah, well. You're not going to win anybody. You're not going to win that year. Sorry, man. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so it's like, sorry, Tom, but yeah, I think you're right. Certainly does a movie like born on the 4th of July thinking like, boom, okay. I've had, you know, I've been atop the box office. I'm a star. Got all these things. So you think born on the 4th of July, uh, is going to get you that Oscar and it doesn't. And I'd love to hear Cruz talk about that. I wonder if that was any sort of tipping point for him. If afterwards he's just like, you know what? Um, I'll be an icon instead because it's not long after that, that he does, uh, you know, A Few Good Men, uh, which, uh, you know, is the movie that puts him in the room with Jack Nicholson and it, it, immediately iconic scenes out of that movie. I mean, uh, Cruz has already created, uh, turned himself into an icon in many ways because he's just got a way of creating these moments that become endlessly replicable uh, and endlessly referenceable. And A Few Good Men, uh, you know, continues that run. He follows up the difficult drama film like Born on the Fourth of July with another Tony Scott exciting action-ish movie, Days of Thunder, that puts him not on a fighter jet, but in a NASCAR stock car driving around in circles. Perhaps most importantly, without Days of Thunder, there's no eyes wide shut because Days of Thunder is Tom Cruise's first movie with Nicole Kidman. 
they do two more movies together. They immediately do Far and Away together. Uh, and then obviously, you know, they end up in a relationship and that leads ultimately to Eyes Wide Shut. But before we get all the way ahead of ourselves, let's look at what else he does after those collaborations with Nicole Kidman in the early 90s. We mentioned A Few Good Men, some great scenes with Jack Nicholson in 1992. That starts this hot streak at the box office that between 1993 and 1996, everything Tom Cruise makes hits 100 million domestic. This guy's box office goal during this era, established in the 80s, He's on a great streak. That's followed up with a movie called The Firm. In 1993, a legal drama opens at 25.4 million, tops out at 158. The Firm is huge. I mean, it's like you've got Cruz, who is already one of the biggest stars on the planet, in an adaptation of a novel by John Grisham, who, you know, it, it's like, I guess you could look at it kind of like, I'm trying to think of sort of the the adult beach read to movie pipeline. You've got Mario Puzo in the 70s with Godfather. You've got uh, either Thomas Harris or um, more likely uh, Tom Clancy in the 80s. And then you've got John Grisham in the 90s. John Grisham's books spawn a whole set of successful movies through the 90s. The Firm is the first of them. It's a blockbuster. It's a huge deal. Um, and it's, it's you know, for like kind of a could-be-cheap adaptation of a page-turner, it's a pretty effective movie. Uh, maybe it's because it's made by Sidney Pollack. Um, you know, and again, like you can see like Cruz saying, oh, uh, I can be in a movie by the guy who made Three Days of the Condor and Tootsie and, you know, like, yeah, let's do that. Um, and, and as a result, you know, the firm turns out pretty well. And from The Firm, we go to 1994, and at least, I don't know about you, Rebecca, this is the first movie that I can remember Tom Cruise being in. I was mm-hmm. nine years old at the time. I wasn't old enough to see it, but it was an important film for people our age, Interview with a Vampire. How did this hit over in our demographic, Rebecca, from your perspective? Uh, it definitely represented something different for Cruise. I mean, it's not quite romantic lead. It's kind of a genre, you know, he essentially just plays this vampire who's very kind of like boppish and over the top. You got Brad Pitt, Antonio Banderas, Tom Cruise, and Christian Slater in one movie. I mean, that's that's Ooh. just about the pinnacle. And it is a successful film, uh, opening to $36.3 million and uh, tapping out at 105 domestically. Uh, I guess American moviegoers just discovered a love of silk cravats with that one. Um, <laughs> but, but what I find super interesting, Daniel, as you mentioned, I mean, he was just gold. He could do no wrong in this period. His movies were box office successes. But all of them were very different. You, you had The Firm yeah. as a legal drama. Interview with a Vampire is a kind of moody genre historical romance. And then, of course, you have uh, the ones immediately after, which we're going to go to uh, in, in more depth. Mission Impossible uh, kind of puts Tom Cruise back into his action persona. Russ, it's also when he begins producing. Yeah. And I, I think that as a result, Mission is the most significant movie Cruise made in the 90s. Um, you got to look at it this way. Paramount had tried to do a Mission Impossible movie for years and hadn't been able to crack it, couldn't get it off the ground. Um, at the time, a, a classic TV series being adapted into movies was not the sort of obvious play that it is now. It was actually kind of weird, like, oh, why are you doing this thing? Like, isn't this kind of 
cheap and tawdry. Um, but Cruz liked the show as a kid. He wanted to do it. And he and his producing partner, Paula Wagner, were looking for their first outing. And they decided to make it mission. Um, a few, a couple of years earlier, Cruz had met Brian De Palma via Steven Spielberg, um, watched all of De Palma's movies and was like, he's the guy to make Mission. Uh, De Palma's career was Which not- is like, why would you ever say that? That's, to me, super surprising to hear. I love Brian De Palma, but I watch Sisters. I watch Stress <laughs> to Kill. I don't think this is the guy to make Mission Impossible. I think that De Palma works, but I mean, Mission is a, is a troubled production. It goes into production without a finished script. Um, it's expensive. Uh, it's using uh, digital effects early on, and it's trying to do so in a seamless way that is very common now and at, at the time was not common and was not easy to do. And yet it, you know, the movie works. It's, um, you know, it's weird because we've talked about action star crews, but honestly, I don't think Cruz is an action star and I don't think he's ever been, but I think that the sort of the image of Mission Impossible is so big and so significant and so intrinsically tied to our understanding of Cruz now that that is the default way to think of him. Um, and he certainly engenders that with that phenomenal show-stopping, like Rafifi-inspired sequence where he's dangling from ropes over, you know, uh, emotion. That's all the Palma. In, in my opinion, that scene well, is 100% the Palma and like 0.1% Tom Cruise. Hey, it's Tom Cruise on the wires. It's Tom Cruise and not true. a stuntman on the wires. Doing that stunt, absolutely. You're right. You know, you think about... The core strength you have to have for yeah, that. Yeah, you, you think yeah. about, like, like Cruise is very clearly someone from day one has been a physical overachiever and perfectionist when it comes to his approach to movie roles. And Mission Impossible is the ideal framework in which he can explore that. Like, this whole legend of Cruise being the guy who does his own stunts and who's constantly trying to one-up himself with stunts. The American Jackie Chan. Yes, and that mm. begins with this movie, and and it's just like... That was, that was a it was a big movie in the Polly household. It's one of the first movies I remember seeing in theaters. Another wore the VHS out. It's not... It's a big deal. You know, and it's like, it's a successful movie. <laughs> you guys can go into the numbers. <laughs> and the numbers are huge here. $45.4 million opening weekend. It ends up grossing $180 million domestic. This is both from an opening weekend level... And uh, Cume perspective, the biggest Tom Cruise movie that's ever been released. You mentioned how it's a big hit at the Pauly household. This movie is released at a time when the U.S. model of the multiplex is making its way through Latin America with Cinemark introducing the modern multiplex model all over key Latin American markets. And they do so with movies like Mission Impossible, which was released in late May of 1996, and Independence Day, which came out in early July of 1996. That summer is so important when we think about how you introduced a new generation of moviegoers, introduced a new generation of movie theaters into the entire Latin American region. I'll always think of Mission Impossible with this fondness because it was part of that early crop of U.S. Hollywood blockbusters that you see in a completely different uh, movie-going setting. 
a huge, huge hit domestically, also a huge hit internationally. This movie makes $457 million worldwide. Now we're talking about a new level of stardom as we enter the second half of the 1990s. And after Mission Impossible, instead of launching directly into a sequel, he actually takes a little bit of a left turn and goes into the first collaboration with Cameron Crowe. Russ, uh, someone that you mentioned, has been in his life for a couple of years now. You can see Crowe and Cruz having meetings and Crowe being like, this is your, I'm going to get you the Oscar. (laughs) We're going to do it. Um, And it's like, this is a big movie from every, like any perspective you want to look at Jerry Maguire. Cuba Gooding Jr. makes a big splash in this movie. Renee Zellweger does as well. Um, again, you've got Cameron Crowe working in primo mode and it's, and it's just like, this is, this is a huge movie. It's a movie that is like the, the sort of four quadrant movie that happened once upon a time that probably would not happen today. And Cruz is a big part of why it gets to happen in the first place. I think you're right, Russ. I'm not sure a movie like Jerry Maguire gets made today, even with Tom Cruise. I think it's very much a product of its time. And I remember it being a very watchable movie, a very pleasant movie. Audiences like it. Uh, the movie opens to 17 million and then goes on to make $153 million. Everything that Tom Cruise is touching turns into box office gold during this era. He also gets nominated for an Oscar again. Yeah. I would find it very difficult to believe that he and Cameron Crowe did not build Jerry Maguire Uh, from the ground up with Oscars in mind somewhere. Uh, And the movie does win, uh, but Tom Cruise does not. He loses to Jeffrey Rush, uh, who gave an exceptional performance in the movie Shine, uh, which Mm, is sadly a film that's kind of fallen off the radar for virtually everybody. You know, Jerry Maguire is nominated for Best Picture, doesn't win that either. Uh, But Cuba Gooding Jr. does win for Best Supporting Actor. So there's that, and that works. Uh, So, you know, again, the Oscar alludes Cruise. So after losing that Best Actor uh, Academy Award in 1996, uh, Tom Cruise actually ends up making some really interesting decisions as an actor. Guys, this is probably my favorite era of Tom Cruise. For me, if you had to ask what's your favorite movie, there's probably like four Stanley Kubrick movies that I'm going to rattle out. Eyes Wide Shut is probably one of them. I absolutely adore this movie. Um, It wasn't easy to make. It took a lot of time and effort to make it. I don't think Warner Brothers knew exactly how to market it. Not that marketing a Stanley Kubrick movie is very easy to do, but it really leans into that uh, power couple and star persona of both Kidman and Cruz in a way, and it's been spoken about before, that maybe even costs them their marriage down the line not long after this movie is released. Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, certainly the making of Eyes Wide Shut was an arduous and lengthy process. Um, and then, it, of course, the, the entire production is capped off with, and you know, in the, the movie's release is capped off by the death of, of uh, Stanley Kubrick, which is, you know, it just, it's a... It's a wild set of circumstances. Um, you know, were Cruz and Kidman really fated to be together? I, I don't know. You know, they work together. They clash in this movie. This movie is about 
dysfunction and assumptions and uh, communication problems. It's about a lot of things. I think Cruz is nearly perfectly cast in this movie because I think it plays so directly to his own unique persona. Uh, it's a great movie for Kidman. I mean, I'm with you. I think Eyes Wide Shut's a fabulous movie. It's one of my favorite movies, period. Um, and I, you know, it, it can't happen with any other people than Cruz and Kidman. It's just like they are all so deeply and intrinsically linked. Yeah, I'm not sure this movie is nearly as good with any other leads uh, taking on those roles. Uh, I think it's fantastic. What I love about Tom Cruise's performance in Ice White Shut and why I think it's his best moment as an actor is that if I think of a word to describe Tom Cruise, uh, apart from star, it's confidence. He's got just so much self-confidence and that is put to the test throughout this movie. There are so many holes pierced through that aura of confidence and likability. He ends up looking like a chump. He ends up looking like a fool. It reminds me of a lot of the same reasons why I love Jimmy Stewart's performance in Vertigo, where I have a relationship with him as an actor, and Vertigo completely plays into these aspects of masculinity that we all think we should all aspire to, and just completely dresses them down and exposes them as frauds. I absolutely, absolutely love him in this movie. Nicole Kidman's fantastic. And from there, he takes on an ensemble role in another very interesting movie, P.T. Anderson's Magnolia. But we talk about this male persona, this playing with this egotistical aspect of how we think of Tom Cruise. Russ, his performance here completely connects to that and also dresses down how we think of Tom Cruise, the actor and star. Yeah, I mean, Magnolia directly engages with and plays with uh, any notion of Cruise as a male movie star. Uh, that's P.T. Anderson being super smart about things, but crucially also Cruise being game for it. You know, it's uh, it's something that you can see a lot of other people walking away from and Cruise, to his credit, you know, it's P.T. Anderson after Boogie Nights, literally everybody except for Burt Reynolds, wanted to work with the guy. Uh, I think Reynolds had enough after Boogie Nights. But, um, you know, everybody else was like, oh, my God, yes. And Cruz, with his very well, at this point, understood interest in working with significant and, uh, you know, unique talents, clearly he wants to be in this movie. And I, you can imagine him saying like, yeah, OK, what do you want me to do? Yeah, let's, you know, let's do it. And, and from two very um, mature-driven, maybe uh, complex and on some level inaccessible titles, I guess you could say, that, that benefit from multiple watches, uh, to Mission Impossible 2, which is the first sequel of his career. But it's John Woo directing it, so it clearly kind of plays into the, you know, yeah, it, Tom Cruise wanting to work with the premier directors of the age. Yeah, I, I think at this point in the Mission Impossible franchise, the way it's looking like is Tom Cruise is producing and starring in movies and bringing in directors with a very big brand name and a very clear style. The idea of Mission Impossible 2 directed by John Woo is a lot more exciting and fun to think about than watching Mission Impossible 2. I don't know how you guys feel. I love John Woo's movies. I think this one, 
Yeah, just didn't work out. That Limp Biscuit song doesn't help at all, by the way, in this movie. <laughs> I think Mission 2 is an unfortunate uh, mismatch of talent and material uh, in as much as there's material. I mean, it's like the... You know, this is one of those things where uh, there's a little bit of cart before the horse. Uh, Supposedly, some of the action uh, sequences were kind of designed and planned for the movie before the script was finished. Um, I think some of the stuff that worked in the first movie doesn't work in this. Uh, I don't think... Uh, John Woo's style meshes with what Cruz is trying to do, which is unfortunate because you would think like, whoa, this is this is going to really click. And it doesn't. Um, I think Dugray Scott is not a good villain. Um, you know, he's and at a time he, that's really interesting for Dugray Scott. Wasn't he supposed to be uh, Cyclops well, was, in the X-Men <laughs> movies around this time? I, I mean, the person who should love this movie more than anyone else is Hugh Jackman, uh, because production on Mission 2 went over to such a degree that Dugray Scott, who had been cast as Wolverine, had to drop oh, out of Wolverine. X-Men. The entire X-Men series and Hugh Jackman's entire career are in some sense owed to the to the schedule overrun on mission two. There's just no other way around it. Uh, and I think it worked out best for everyone, uh, except for everybody on mission two where, and I, you know, I think mission two was, uh, you, you hear some stories about it and it seems like Cruz really felt the pressure to deliver with the sequel. Um, and I don't think he dealt with it very well. And, um, you know, it's, it's one of those things where, yeah, uh, stuff just didn't quite click in the way that that you might hope that it would. It still made money, but it just it's clearly not quite uh, working on the same level. And Mission Impossible 2 is the biggest box office hit of Tom Cruise's career up to this point when it comes out in the year 2000. After two very niche titles, like Rebecca mentioned, uh, in Magnolia and Ice Wide Shut that obviously aren't big blockbusters, aren't designed to be big blockbusters, Mission Impossible 2 comes out, opens to 57 million the biggest opening weekend of Tom Cruise at the time, tops out at 215 million domestic. This is the first time a Tom Cruise movie crosses the $200 million mark at the box office. And then we go into another different stage of his career in the 2000s. Vanilla Sky in itself, I think a very serviceable remake of a very, very good Spanish movie um, in a way that maybe it doesn't, distinguish itself too much from the Spanish original. Yeah. And from there, he jumps into his first direct collaboration with Spielberg. Uh, Clearly, the two have met a number of times. Uh, I'm sure there are quite a few near misses between uh, Cruz and Spielberg, uh, but they unite for Minority Report. And then just a couple of years later, they come back together for War of the Worlds. I think both of these movies are terrific sci-fi. They're both really kind of fantastic, visually opulent, uh, really exciting productions that that are shows Spielberg being very engaged and energized. Uh, and Cruz is clearly enjoying uh, the process of working with him on, on both of them. Um, of the two, I actually think I like War of the Worlds more, in part because it also engages with that idea of Cruz playing against you know, any sort of uh, sympathetic, nice guy type, like his character in World of Worlds is a jerk. He's a, he's a 
bad person and a bad father. And, and it's kind of a great movie to watch him uh, grow up into something better than that. And I think in that batch, I really look at a movie like Collateral as one of the more interesting Tom Cruise vehicles of that time. Of course, I love Michael Mann with a passion. And this is the first time we see Tom Cruise playing a villain. I don't think we'd seen this at all. Am I, well, maybe Magnolia, he wasn't really likable in Magnolia, but this is a real big departure from the sort of roles that Tom Cruise plays, and he does it fantastically well in Collateral. Yeah, I mean, I think he is exceptional in this movie. I love Collateral. I think it's a great movie. Um, I think everybody in this movie is good, but Cruz is particularly good. I think it, I think Michael Mann knew exactly what to do with Cruz. They're shooting on video. Um, I wonder if there's something about the immediacy of that, that facilitated something with Cruz. Um, but yeah, collateral is a terrific movie with, with Cruz as sort of a hired killer who, uh, ends up on a nighttime cruise through LA, excuse me, um, with a cab driver, uh, played by Jamie Foxx. Um, Originally cast as Adam Sandler, by the way. Adam Sandler was supposed to play that role. He ended up not being able to because he ended up in a movie called Spanglish. Oh, yes, of course. Spanglish, which has had a lingering cultural impact. And of course, we talked about War of the Worlds a bit ago, and that ended up being the new high benchmark of a Tom Cruise movie in 2005, directed by Steven Spielberg, opening to 64.8 million, topping out at 234.2 million. War of the Worlds is another just reminder of that drawing power that Tom Cruise can have at the box office. All of these movies that we mentioned basically after Magnolia being a hundred million plus earners. And I think that maybe gives him that confidence to go back to the Mission Impossible franchise, which he had abandoned after Mission Impossible 2 hadn't really worked out. We're talking about six years that seemed like a lot longer because between Mission Impossible 2 in 2000 and Mission Impossible 3 in 2006, we've got superhero movies now really taking the genre in a very different direction. But Tom Cruise works with a very interesting filmmaker coming out of the TV industry. J.J. Abrams wasn't really known as a filmmaking name at this point. He was a TV guy. He was very much not a filmmaker at this point. He, that's exactly right. He was a TV guy. And, you know, there's aspects of Mission 3 that do feel kind of like TV. Uh, it's interesting that evidently there was a point where David Fincher was uh, developing this. And uh, a Fincher MI3 is a really interesting thing to consider. Uh, Joe Carnahan also uh, worked on this a little bit. Notably, Cruz uh, produced Carnahan's movie Narc, which is uh, actually, I think, Carnahan's probably his best film still. Um, but yeah, Mission 3 is uh, is kind of a smaller movie in a lot of ways, but it has one really significant aspect, which is Philip Seymour Hoffman as the best Bond villain who is not in a James Bond movie. He is... <laughs> phenomenal and uh, terrifying in a lot of ways. But it seems like Tom Cruise trying to get something right that he didn't get right in Mission Impossible 2, at least as a producer. And there are high stakes for Mission Impossible 3 when it comes out. There's an unproven filmmaker, as a filmmaker, like we said, J.J. Abrams wasn't uh, a guarantee at this point. We knew he could do TV. We didn't know what he was going to do in a movie. And that star persona of Tom Cruise before the release of Mission Impossible 3, is at its lowest point ever 
In 2005, during his relationship with Katie Holmes, he does a couple of media appearances that, frankly, he looks unhinged. He is oversaturated all over the media. He gives a terrible interview jumping on a couch on Oprah's daytime talk show. An even worse interview, somehow, he does even worse when he talks to Matt Lauer in an interview uh, on NBC. His star persona takes a massive, massive hit. And Mission Impossible 3 is the first step to recover from it. I think he does, but from there he takes some decisions as a star that don't really pan out. Rebecca, the first one coming out of there is a collaboration with Robert Redford. Yeah, uh, that would be Lions for Lambs, which opened to six points in the million, making it the lowest winning movie that, that Tom Cruise starred in since all the way out of the color of money in 1996. Um, I mean, it, it's strange to think that people growing up or coming up today might not want to moment how it kind of caused the flip of a switch of like oh everyone has to reassess Tom Cruise now he was always a very private man we never really felt like you saw behind the curtain what was behind his eyes and now it's like okay there might be some stuff that's not good um you know and, and it's it's worth it's worth noting in there that he had a, a a personal publicist for a very long time and they split he stopped working with her in 04, I think, and mm. there's a, I think there's a pretty direct correlation between that change in someone who is helping to guide and shape his public image and this severe public image breakdown that we're talking about. That, uh, that, that explains from, a lot, actually. And uh, oh. Yeah, I think uh, it does explain a lot because we go from Tom Cruise the star to Tom Cruise the Scientologist in the public eye. And that really makes that relationship with the public, not only here in the U.S., but internationally, work at a different level. And the artistic decisions, the movies that he makes after Mission Impossible 3 don't really work that well at the box office. One of the that I think is the most uh, interesting kind of, kind of stuff looking at uh, the arc of Tom Cruise's career is in this period. It comes out in 2008, shortly after Lions for Lambs. Uh, that would be Traffic Thunder in played uh, a supporting role in a fat suit, yelling into a phone. It was bald. basically a send-up of... Huh? He was bald? He was bald. He yeah. Was, he basically was making fun of Harvey Weinstein or Scott Rudin. I don't know. There are so many awful uh, awful producers in Hollywood. You, you, can, you can really take your pick. But it really felt at the time like this was Tom Cruise making a point of saying, no, I can do anything. I can make fun of myself because all through the Scientology craziness, I mean, you, you didn't you didn't get the sense that Tom Cruise was a man who could have a sense of humor about himself. And this felt like a direct rebuttal to that. And it didn't really lead to anything else in that vein, which yeah. I, I thought he was really funny. But before we get to the 2010s, uh, we have to talk about uh, Valkyrie. Valkyrie. How do I how do I say this? Valkyrie. Thing? Yeah, Valkyrie. Valkyrie. 2008. Yeah. Um, Notable yeah. here his I mean, collaboration for the first time with a the writer on the project, Christopher McQuarrie, who ends up being the director of a number of the Mission Impossible sequels that happened in the years following the release of the film. And this is a movie that didn't yeah. hit a hundred million dollars. Which at the time, this is the first big Tom Cruise movie to not hit that benchmark. It opens at 21 million, a good start comparable to other 
films that he released in the early 2000s. But 2008, Valkyrie ends up at 83 million, and that's followed with a similar performance in a very odd movie co-starring Cameron Diaz, Night and Day in 2010, also opening to 20 million and topping out at 76 million. So that box office power is eroding as we enter the 2010s. I, I think that I think that the the couch jumping incident and the the lingering effect of that and more to the point just the lingering effect uh, and public awareness of Cruz's association with Scientology, which is a deep and in many ways troubling association. Um, that is, I think that's forefront in audience minds when they're looking at Cruz in movies. And um, in 2011, he's going to do a movie that helps kind of reset the board there. But I think these films that he's in right now are really suffering from Cruz being at his lowest point of public perception. Um, Valkyrie, you know, it's not a great movie. Uh, it's an interesting story, you know, but it's Brian Singer already kind of seeming like he's not entirely on top of his game uh, with this. But crucially, the movie was, you know, was brainstormed by uh, writer and, and also film director Chris McQuarrie. Um, Chris McQuarrie is the one who takes it to uh, Cruz Wagner Productions. They agree to produce it and get the movie made. And that begins Christopher McQuarrie's association with Tom Cruise, which continues to this very day with, uh, you know, this morning, the official teaser trailer release of uh, their new movie, Mission Impossible 7, a.k.a. Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1, which is way too long of a title. But anyway, the Cruz McQuarrie partnership is a very fruitful one. And it is probably the single, like maybe working together on this movie is another one of those massive career turning points that changes the future for Cruise. And Christopher McQuarrie is actually involved reportedly doing uncredited rewrites of the script to the next Mission Impossible sequel that comes out in 2011. Mission Impossible, Ghost Protocol. J.J. Abrams, the director of the third installment, moving on to produce the film alongside Tom Cruise and Brad Bird stepping in to direct. Rebecca, you saw this at the movies. What did you think of it? For me, it, it kind of felt the same way that Fast Five did, where it was a franchise that's been going on for a while and there was a break and it comes back. And like, it's surprisingly good. And it's literally a bigger movie. They shot some of this movie natively in IMAX. And I think Ghost Protocol is one of those. It's it's one of the early wave of movies that is very much oriented towards like you've got to see this in IMAX. Um, and I mean, I saw like Ghost Protocol is a good movie. It plays well on a screen of any size. But man, some of those sequences in IMAX, the Burj Khalifa climb, um, the sandstorm in IMAX, those are spectacular sequences. Even so, this movie has the same script development issues that seems like uh, seems to be endemic to all of the mission movies. And at a certain point, Christopher McQuarrie is brought in to kind of pinch hit and, and do a bunch of crucial rewrites um, and, you know, helps kind of lock him in as the mission guy. Like he, he really becomes Cruz's guy. They go on to make a different movie together, the first Jack Reacher film. Um, but, you know, Ghost Protocol is a big turning point. It's a big deal. It's a, it's a hit. It's an, it's a unique movie, and uh, yeah, it works like crazy. Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol is the first $200 million domestic Tom Cruise movie 
since 2005, since War of the Worlds. So it takes him six years to regain that box office blockbuster level that was derailed with that uh, jumping on the couch incident, with that meltdown that we saw in the media. And if we look at the role that Tom Cruise takes directly after Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, and obviously after that, uh, let's call it glorified cameo in, in Rock of Ages, Jack Reacher seemed like that's what he's going to do now. He's just going to launch a new franchise based on these beloved books. Russ, we've talked about this on the podcast. You're actually a fan of the Jack Reacher books. The character itself looks nothing like Tom Cruise, but Tom Cruise makes it work. I love this first Jack Reacher movie, not just because of Cruise, but because of Macquarie and because it's like... It's a weirdly quiet movie. It's a uh, it's a movie where Chris McQuarrie is like lets Cruz's character kind of mentally put things together without really like spelling it out for you in voiceover. It's an unusual movie. Um, it's shot in a really distinctive way. It's written in a distinctive way. The action sequences are great, and then he quickly goes into this other stuff. You know, he he does Reacher, which is a smaller, quieter movie, but, you know, then Oblivion, which puts him together with Joe Kaczynski, uh, who will go on to direct Top Gun Maverick. I don't think Oblivion works very well. And I think, you know, we'll have to, I'll have to refresh myself on the box office. I don't think Oblivion performed quite as well as anyone hoped it might. It it Uh, doesn't. And neither does the first Jack Reacher movie. I mean, these are both movies that end up topping out in the 80 million mark. You know, they're not flops, but they're not Tom Cruise movies. And I think this is the first indication that we're seeing that outside of Mission Impossible, we can't really rely on Tom Cruise to launch a franchise. It doesn't work with Jack Reacher, even though there's a sequel that does actually even worse than the original. Oblivion, I'm not sure if that was meant to be a franchise, but it doesn't really launch to where it should be. I really liked Edge of Tomorrow that came in 2014. I really like that movie. The movie's awesome. The yeah. movie's really oh, good. So good. I loved it. I love that I movie. I really loved that it. it was him and Emily Blunt having, like, there was no romance in it, which I loved. Which Tom Cruise's screen persona by this point is oddly kind of sexless. Yes. Does, does anyone get, I mean. Oh, absolutely. He is, he is I, sensibly it, in the yeah. Mission Impossible movies. Yeah. But, like, you don't buy that really with him and Rebecca Ferguson or Michelle Pfeiffer. No, not at all. And that's a, that's a very big contrast to where he was in the late 80s and early 90s, where he was a heartthrob, right? And yeah. you're right. He just completely goes in this like weird sexless action guy that rides motorcycles and jumps off cliffs in movies that don't really work all that well. Uh, but Edge of Tomorrow, I think, is the exception. I think when we think about these Tom Cruise movies during this era, at least for me, that's the one I had the most fun watching at the theaters. It is super fun. And it's weird. I mean, I agree with you guys completely that he is kind of unusually sexless on screen, which is wild because the sex scene in Top Gun is like one of the iconic sex scenes, right? Like you picture 80s movie sex scene and you picture the scene from Top Gun. And then it's like he really veered away from that. And I mean, Eyes Wide Shut is about that in a lot of ways. You know, Eyes Wide Shut is him veering away from sex scenes in in some ways. But uh, yeah, it's it's just not a thing he's doing now. It feels like after, you know, controversy surrounding Katie Holmes and Scientology and all that, he it's part of him trying to sanitize his image and completely control his image to the outside world. Yeah. 
And then uh, from there, we have the sixth uh, Mission Impossible film, Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, uh, open to 55.5 million. From there, the aforementioned Jack Reacher uh, sequel with an opening of 22.8. And then, Daniel, I mean, speaking of Tom Cruise is having trouble launching a franchise outside of Mission Impossible. This is interesting. Let's let's focus on this one because uh, <laughs> Russ, were you at the CinemaCon when when Universal brought out the big press release for their what is it like classic monsters universe? Welcome to the Dark, dark universe. universe. The yeah. dark, dark universe. universe. You know, it's it's wild because Jack Reacher Never Go Back is one of the worst movies that Tom Cruise has ever made. It's bad, and then he follows it with the Mummy, which is the worst movie Tom Cruise has ever made. At this point, we fully transitioned into this IP-driven era. Um, The Marvel Cinematic Universe is moving along at full steam. This is the period when every studio is like, we need a shared universe. We need it. And Universal conveniently has this very well-established set of IP, you know, the monster movies. And It's not the craziest idea in the world to redevelop these movies as a shared universe. What was crazy is the fact that they cast everyone and announced all these movies before the first one even come out of the game. They swung for the fences. And to be fair, you're going to launch this dark universe, cinematic universe with all of these horror characters that are immediately recognizable anywhere. It's really hard to have Jack Reacher become a global franchise if you don't know who Jack Reacher is. You know The Mummy. You know Frankenstein. You know The Invisible Man. This was as close to a guarantee as possible, but you know you, you still got to make a good movie, and The Mummy sucked. Yeah, we have to, we have to call it the they way it is. It, it's, it's a terrible movie. The, the thing is, though, I would even argue that because I think that Universal over and over has assumed that there is a global recognizance and interest in the monster characters. And the movies that they have made have proved that that is not true. Um, They've struggled over and over again with Dracula movies, with weird like reboots and revisions. Um, You know, the, the Brendan Fraser mummy was a hit, and it's not a hit because there's a mummy in it. You know, it's a hit because of Brendan Fraser and Rachel Weisz and and the energy of the film. Because it's a perfect, perfect movie. (laughs) And it's a hit because everybody buys tickets for it when they can't get tickets to The Phantom Menace. In a way that you think, well, Brendan Fraser could pull it off. Tom Cruise will easily, easily launch this new franchise for Universal. He doesn't. It kills the dark universe. That $80 million domestic doesn't help anyone Less than 500 million worldwide, which, you know, it ends at 409. That's a very good number, but it's not enough to build five different movies with A-list talent coming on uh, sight unseen. It, It has to be looked at that dark universe as one of the biggest failures and embarrassing failures from this swing for the fences, shared cinematic universe, king of IP strategy that we've seen in the last 10 years. Yeah, I mean, from the beginning, this whole enterprise seems crass money grubbing, you know? There's no point where anybody said, wow, I really want a shared dark universe. (laughs) Nobody wanted that. And that said, it's not even the worst idea. But, you know, they went about it in exactly the wrong way. That pair, Jack Reacher Never Go Back, and then The Mummy are 
cruises. Those are that is Cruz's worst outing. He's got just a terrible year from mid twenty sixteen to mid twenty seventeen. Um, is just like dire. And even the movie that comes out after that, American Made, a little bit of a quiet movie. Uh, I actually enjoyed this. This title came out. It wasn't built to be this big action movie, a big blockbuster. It's a nice Sunday afternoon movie, but it still doesn't hit anywhere you would expect a Tom Cruise movie to perform. American Made uh, topping out at 51 million domestically. We're at a point right now where Tom Cruise really isn't much of a star outside of these Mission Impossible movies. And I think it's fair to say before Mission Impossible Fallout comes out, I'm not even, as a viewer, I'm not even too sure that there's too much gas left in the tank of these Mission Impossible movies. But then I buy a ticket to Mission Impossible Fallout at the Landmark in Los Angeles in 2018, and I see one of the best action movies I've ever seen in my life. This is the movie that I think resets the entire career trajectory of Tom Cruise to where it is today on the eve of Top Gun Maverick. Guys, how did you react to Mission Impossible Fallout in 2018? Pretty much the same. I think it's a terrific movie. You know, it's a it's a great action movie. It's huge. It, you know, builds on the crews doing stunts and the IMAX footage aspects um, that were begun in Ghost Protocol and Rogue Nation. Um, well, that I mean, the stunts thing goes back to the beginning of the of the series, obviously. Um, but it also, you know, now it's like Cruz just has his shared universe is mission. You know, it's like, it doesn't need anything beyond that. It's like, like you, you know, Rebecca kind of, I think made the good point that this is like the Fast and the Furious movies in a way it's, you know, an ever expanding ensemble cast. All of these characters keep coming back. And it's, I think that is really delivering something that works. And, you know, Cruz and McQuarrie have really started to figure out like, okay, this is what's going to work in these movies. And they, and they follow it through. And in a business where what have you done for me lately ends up being really the the credo, the modus operandi here, where you are only as good as your last movie, the success of Mission Impossible Fallout reestablishes Tom Cruise as that total movie star, as a consummate showman. Uh, he is very active promoting his films. Uh, he's been very active promoting the upcoming Mission Impossible sequels. And uh, he was one of the few, actually the only major star to attend exhibition conventions in 2021, promoting Top Gun and those Mission Impossible sequels. There's a lot of goodwill riding on that Tom Cruise star persona as we approach the opening weekend of Top Gun Maverick in the coming days. Ross, Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us in this very long episode. And to our audience, thank you again for sticking with us and listening to this whole episode. We will be back next week with a full analysis of those opening weekend results for Top Gun Maverick. The Box Office Podcast is produced by Box Office Company, Box Office Pro, and Report Edit Podcast. New episodes come out every Thursday, so don't forget to subscribe, rate, and share if you like what we're doing. Thanks again. Thanks again.